Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to a new episode of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by The Times Literary Supplement. I am Thea Linarduzzi, a commissioning editor at the TLS, and to present the show this week, I am joined by our art editor and resident horticulturalist, putting the flowers in Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, Lucy Dallas. Hello. Hello. I'm so happy to be described <laughs> like that. I don't think it's very accurate, but I'm very happy. Well, I mean, it's comparative, so certainly by comparison with me. Uh, you're you're a horticulturalist. I well. I managed to kill almost everything. So, um, with the editor away this week, it is in fact the perfect opportunity, perhaps, for us to trial this new feature that we've been playing with, toying with in hushed uh, in hushed tones for some time now. So, Lucy Dallas. What is growing in your South London allotment at the moment? If only we'd had time to plan it more, we could have done a jingle. <laughs> Wouldn't that be Next brilliant? Time we can I'll make work it quarterly or just any time sticks away. Fantastic. It's not a particularly good time, I'm afraid, to start this on account it of isn't. it being February. So what is growing? A truthful answer is nothing. Turnips? It's February. No, I haven't got turnips. I'll tell you what, though. No, you will appreciate this. Rhubarb. Oh, lovely. Yep. Oh, excellent. In fact, I've got some rhubarb under a cloche. <laughs> There we go. It's true though, because we are we're approaching the hungry gap, aren't we? We're we're in it. We're in the hungry yeah, gap, basically, which is June, why Brexit is so well timed. Exactly. Because this is the time when seventy five percent of our food produce, our fresh fruit and veg, is imported. Yeah, because you can get you can get stuff going until even through January, but there's not much yeah. going on now. So there's root a, vegetables. There's a bit of cabbage. Yeah. I mean, not on not on mine. I isn't to add <laughs> Jerusalem artichokes, which are vile, and everybody thinks so. <laughs> And, I mean, I can't even think of anything else. So, oh. so rhubarb. Rhubarb. Uh, yeah. And that concludes this, the first instalment in the Lucy Dallas Allotment Adventures series. That's a long title. We might have to rethink the title. It's not very catchy, is it? Uh, this week on the podcast, a word of warning, we're going to be talking about sexual violence. So if that isn't something that you uh, want to listen to, please skip along about 20 minutes. As the Me Too movement continues to focus our attentions on questions around abuse, consent and justice, Rebecca Watson joins us to discuss the various and prolonged impacts of sexual assault. 
And according to a study by the Knowledge Academy, in 2018, European language and literature degrees were the third least popular among UK undergraduates. A worrying trend, says our French editor Adrian Towardin, at a time when the country is preparing for a period of self-imposed isolation from its European neighbours. The Society of Authors' annual translation prizes is then a welcome antidote. Adrian will join us in the studio to tell us about the diverse and challenging books in contention. Finally... I'm going to mention it now in case time runs away with me. You'll find a bonus episode in your podcast feed this week, a recording of the novelist Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie delivering the inaugural Gabriel García Márquez lecture at Hay Festival Cartagena earlier this month. Not to be missed. The Crime Survey for England and Wales makes for stark reading. For the year ending March 2017, the survey estimates that 12.1% of adults aged 16 to 59 experienced sexual assault since the age of 16. This equates to around 4 million victims. Home Office data focusing specifically on rape, meanwhile, shows that 88% of rape offences recorded by the police involve a female victim. We must also take into account, though, that the vast majority of rapes, five out of six, are never reported. The most commonly cited reasons are fear of being blamed and fear of not being believed. And given Britain's low conviction rates in rape cases, one can perhaps understand why. Statistics recently revealed by the Crown Prosecution Service show that less than one third of prosecutions brought against men aged 18 to 24 resulted in convictions. Of course, statistics tell only part of the story. For one thing, they do not speak for the complicated work of internal interrogation that generally precedes anyone making it to the point of reporting their experience, let alone navigating the judicial process. Writing in this week's TLS, Rebecca Watson speaks of a nagging was I, a default self-doubt that glosses every statement and undermines from the beginning the speaker's ability to narrate their own assault. Rebecca Watson joins us in the studio now to tell us more. Rebecca, thanks very much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Very early on in your piece, you describe the way that that victims of sexual assault turn the gun to their own temple. You're quoting there from one of the books you cover in the piece, Not That Bad, uh, which is a collection of self-defined dispatches from, from rape culture edited by Roxane Gay. Given that this is one of the first obstacles to achieving a more productive discourse around rape, I thought we might start there with this this behaviour you describe as a sort of automatic uncertainty. Yeah, I guess the idea is that with rape particularly, because there's such a a problem with the way that it's described, so there's a very reductive sense of rape, you know, it's a stranger in a dark street and it's always very violent. So when rape happens and it's not like that, I think that for survivors it's, it's very hard to sort of discern their own experience, so to understand actually what happened. And so if you can't sort of follow a mould, you can't fit into the idea that's promoted. You mentioned there you, you suggested this this guilt. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, that's that's a that's a strong uh, thing that plays throughout your, your, your piece. How does that come into play? So I guess there's sort of several different things that affect it. So there's, there's things like qualification. So um, you start to feel guilty that, that maybe you've actually caused it. So... Maybe you think that you were wearing the wrong clothes. Maybe you think that you insinuated you were interested in the person beforehand. Um, There's a real sense of trying to understand the experience as as a more complicated thing, but rather than it being complicated in the sense of, of how it happened and how the person caused it, instead the complication is to do with yourself. 
And presumably that instinct is strengthened by the fact that there's a lot of society, as you say in your piece, and a lot of even um, judgments colluding with that idea. Yeah. And saying maybe you did cause it yourself by what you were wearing or what... Well, you, you mentioned you say that, that case in Ireland, Yeah, the extraordinary example. one about the... She's wearing nice underwear. So they say, OK, well, it wasn't rape. Yeah. I mean, I'm stating that very <laughs> boldly, but... But it's just is crazy it, in, it's just in 2018. Absolutely astonishing. And and you say in your piece it's a it's a legal equivalent of saying she, she was, was asking, asking for it. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing to see how much of that is still prevalent. That such a sort of reductive, you know, it feels medieval that sort of argument. But it's it's just so prevalent. And Roxanne Gay's collection really, really addresses that. You know, it's called Not That Bad. So it's it's that idea of, of people sort of dismissing it, of your experience being actually sort of insignificant or, you know, you're making a big deal out of something that maybe actually is your fault. Maybe actually, you know, you you were just implying the wrong thing. And also, as you as you say, um, so, so clearly, almost anyone who has been raped and survived can say it was not that bad you know it could have been worse purely because they are still alive yeah which seems which is crazy. incredibly low yeah. bar yeah. it's exactly that's i was thinking that yeah you know it's, it, it's as long as you can say well i'm alive but that's really not much to go on yeah <laughs> and that's that's yeah there's not much consolation is it for anything but in um roxanne Gay's collections it's funny how many of the writers said you know a, a relative or a friend would say oh you know well thank god you're alive that was always the way of I think some of that is a, is an impulse to try and it's it's not to belittle minimize, it. Though. It's yeah. almost to kind of minimize enough because to make it, it containable. Because it because it, it it's so awful mm. to sit there and look yeah, at it. Yeah. As it's, you it's you say that at some point. Yes, it? exactly. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's way difficult. of being able to process it. Um, but does that imply that there isn't enough of a support system present? I mean, if we're having to find ways of sort of reducing it and bottling it, is that because women are or, or men are being forced to deal with it on their own, predominantly in, internally. Yeah. Which is and presumably, if, sorry, why there has been such a, an, an uptick recently in collections like this this Roxane Gay uh, edited collection uh, of survivor stories and, and people putting their stories out there in order to start some conversation and to legitimise a space for this. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, also, I mean, the, the crucial thing about the collection is the fact that all the experiences are so broad and, you know, so incredibly different, both in actually what happened, but also how the people processed it afterwards. And so the more we see that sort of writing, which shows that the multiplicity of the experience and actually how it isn't just this one singular thing, mm. the more actually other people are able to a react to it in a sort of more refined way but also those that experience it are able to say actually yes i i recognize this in something else i've heard or read i know what this experience is i know this is rape just i was momentarily distracted there by the <laughs> picture that we've used to to illustrate the piece because that very much speaks to what you've just been saying um and it's a it's a painting by um, Artemisia Gentileschi uh, from the 1600s of Judith slaying Holofernes, uh, and it was thought to be an allegorical representation of Gentileschi's own trauma, a way of her mm. processing her trauma. It, depic- it depicts her as the Israelite heroine Judith and her mentor uh, Agostino Tassi, who who was tried and he was convicted of 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 her rape. This is one of the strongest threads that runs through your essay, though. It's to do with narrative and how. You know, if the victim is not suppressing the experience by saying, 
for instance, that it wasn't rape at all, but rather it was bad, aggressive, mm-hmm. uh, accidental sex that you know you accidentally acquiesced to. She's likely to be qualifying the experience by comparison or, or, or whatever. How can you give us a sense of how trauma affects the ability of, of people to to tell these these stories in in a joined up sense? Yeah, um, I, this is sort of the the real injustice of it is that you know trauma warps the brain. Your experience of a narrative is completely fractured and you know not at all coherent and you know it confuses it's it's confusing your actual experience of trauma time speeds up your mind can blank out or you know skip things and you you don't end end that by having you know a a clear narrative the only real time that you have a a clear narrative of experience is when it's premeditated but obviously it's the complete opposite and so you leave a horrific experience with a fractured sense of it and then if you're going to go through the legal process or even try and explain it to a friend or a relative you have nothing to really firmly explain you know you're trying to piece together something that is incredibly hard to like understand yourself and that's something that really came across in some of the other books that um I wrote about for this piece oh there's um a false report a yeah, true story that yeah, one exactly tell yeah. us about that book then um so the false report starts with um, Marie, who's an 18-year-old, um, who reports being raped by a stranger. Um, so the stranger breaks into her home, he ties her up, he rapes her for hours, um, and then he leaves. And she calls the police and she tells them, and they're suspicious, and they, they think it sounds you know strange, how did he get there? Um, her foster mother says quite early on to a police officer, actually, you know, she's attention-seeking, she's lied before, I I doubt this story's true. And so her whole whole narrative, she managed to speak up after that, it's just completely unravelled, and very quickly police officers actually start interrogating her and get to the point of, you know, hysteria where she she doesn't know what happened and she actually confesses to lying and eventually is fined, you know, $500, which she can't afford and has to pay. This is just a vulnerable woman who is just like goes through horrible shame. Her friends stop talking to her. One of her friends steals her laptop because she says, if you can lie, I can steal. And it's just like this shocking account. And so a false report uh, looks at Marie's experience, but also several other victims, because they're actually all the victims of one guy who's a serial rapist and, you know, forms this incredibly complex system where he, like, just routinely goes across the US, going to different states, the different police departments won't know what's going on and just gets away with raping women for years. And as you say there, the premeditation completely contrasted with the attempts of, of the women to recount their experiences that are fragmented by trauma. Yeah, But it is extraordinary, as you said, that there's this expectation <clears throat> that you should have a completely seamless narrative, which is the same every time and, you know, is the same an hour after and two weeks after. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in the best of circumstances, that's not really how memory works. No, And it's been proven time and time again, I think, that in traumatic, surprising circumstances, even if you're not personally not being attacked... That's not how memory works. Mm. It's not a filing cabinet. Mm. That's not what it does. As you say, unless it's premeditated because you've gone over something again and again, so you know what the plan is. Yeah. It's, but it's that's, almost, that's you know, a totally different ballgame. Yeah, a, a mm. clear narrative, if anything, is, is a sign of a script of, you know, having actually designed... Yeah, that, that's not how it works normally. So in a situation like that, 
I mean, how could well, it be? And yet and we have a justice system that yeah. sort of relies that on, that demands yeah. that yeah. a crime that tends to have no witnesses apart from the people involved, yeah. that it relies on those two people being able to tell, almost competing for the most joined up, most mm-hmm. most yeah, clear yeah, and yeah. logical and believable, smooth story. Yeah. Yeah. Into this complicated field yes. jumps uh, Jermaine Greer. Tell us about her contribution to the discussion, her her book on rape. Yes, it's a hard one. It's not much of a contribution to the discussion. It's it's a very slight book. It's about 90 pages long. Most of it is sort of filler. So, you know, she'll talk about a few cases that have happened and sort of skim over them. She'll jump to talking about sex and then back to rape. In itself, there's, I mean, it's, it's sort of heralded as, you know, Jermaine Greer, discussing her, like a new approach to rape but actually most of it is not really anything <laughs> <laughs> well i mean it sounds like um it doesn't sound new it sounds very old it sounds a, a lot of it some of it sounds like the old stuff that's been said mm. for yeah, years and yeah. uh, finally thought people might yeah. not in terms be of saying, assumptions and stereotyping yeah. and saying oh it's not that bad don't worry about it. Um, maybe it was just sex. Yeah, <laughs> just it sounds very. It sounds very confused. It's, that- it's very confused. She's and it's really struck me because I was expecting to at least find sort of a clear argument in the book. You mm. know, that I could then just sort of tear apart if it you know needed tearing apart. But yeah. actually, a lot of it was was just very sort of muddied and strange. And you know, she really does like to come back to that idea of people nowadays not having good enough sex. Like that just seems her recurrent argument. It's just such an extraordinary idea that that's got anything to do with it. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just a complete. I mean, if if she thinks that uh, nowadays we aren't having good enough sex, that's sort of a different book. Mm. You know, that's on sex, not her on rape book. Um, oh yeah, I was going to ask if if modelled as it was and confused as it was, and frankly outrageous as a lot of it is, whether there was a central point that she was trying to make, but. I think, yeah, the, I mean, the, there's a central feeling, there's a central mm. sense of, you know, dissatisfaction uh, and at times real bitterness and bite at uh, how the new generations are, are considering and approaching rape. But, you know, that doesn't stand up as a, an argument. Particularly in, in terms of consent, she seems to really not quite fit with what we're talking about. It's almost like she's been living yeah, in a vacuum. Yeah, things. absolutely. So she says that um, the issue of consent has been you know boiled down by by younger people so she claims that you know campaigners just say no means no and yes means yes and sex nowadays is signing on a dotted line um that's that's how she understands it um which seems to just go against all of the nuance um in which that we are now talking about consent and actually you know we're at a point where it's really exciting there's uh, people are really picking apart consent particularly you know after me too and everything mm. um so it's just sort of Strange. I mean, it seems like where she got almost like an anachronism, or yeah. wild, wildly so. But well, we were talking about her uh, about a month ago because it's her 80th birthday, I think, mm. isn't it? Wasn't it at the end of January? And I was um, saying, well, now she's an environmental campaigner. She's written recent books about that and is going very strong on that. And then I was saying, perhaps that's her, her great cause. Perhaps that's now what <laughs> she's doing. And I was full of. And then this book came along, and it's like, oh. No. No. Okay. <laughs> and also, you know, it's one thing being outspoken and controversial and all of that stuff, but this is a different ball game completely because this seems really extremely unhelpful, if not pernicious. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's sort of undoing so much good that's been done. Um, and obviously, you know, there are people out there that ag- agree with Jermaine Greer and think that we're actually 
describing many things as rape when they're sex, but you know, having her as a, a loud voice chanting that only makes it harder to get through the idea of what consent is. Mm. She's right in her impulse, though. In I mean, in the, there is a problem with the way we're defining rape, isn't she? I mean, mm. her efforts are clearly misdirected. Um, but we, we do conceive of rape, and you suggested this at the beginning of our discussion as well, we conceive of rape as a, as a violent act, but our definition of violence needs to be revised. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's, she's definitely right, yes, that we're defining it wrong, although she sort of tries to push it in the, in the wrong direction. You know, she says that rape, if it doesn't involve any injury, then essentially it's, it's not rape. Which, I mean, one thing that really struck me when I was reading a false report is there's a bit which says that if you're raped at gunpoint, um, an examination afterwards will could look exactly the same as an examination after consensual sex. Which, you know, being raped at gunpoint is obviously an incredibly violent and horrendous situation. And yet, you know, if you're looking for traces in a body, if that's how you're going to discern mm-hmm. how severe something is, then from, from her argument, it means nothing. And so... I mean, what I was saying in the piece about violence really is the fact that, you know, trauma is, is an incredibly violent thing. It's violent in its in its stubbornness and in the way that it lingers and the way that it can stay for years. And, you know, most injuries don't hang around for that long. And so to, to try and reduce how we judge something through how, you know, how much, how much you bleed is just like an inherently stupid argument. <laughs> and on, on that note, Rebecca Watson, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. (laughs) 
France has some pressing political problems at the moment, as discussed on the podcast last week, but it also has a linguistic concern, le globish, to be explained shortly. Meanwhile, we have plenty of our own political issues in Britain, also discussed last week, but our linguistic problem is quite different, a steep decline in the number of people studying foreign languages. The TLS has always reviewed and discussed books in other languages since our inception, and taken a lively interest in the theory and practice of translation. We're always delighted to be involved in the Society of Authors' annual translation prizes, and Adrian Towardin, our French editor and general polyglot, has been writing about them for us for ten years now. Adrian, many thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. You've come all the way down from the 14th Indeed. floor, a long way in the lift. Um, before we get to the prizes themselves, can you tell us about Le Globiche and why the French are so worried about it? Le Globiche is a term which I only came across a couple of weeks ago when I saw it in a letter signed by about 100 people in Le Monde. And it's, it turns out it's an international auxiliary language. I've since looked it up created by somebody called Jean-Paul Nerrière, who's a computer scientist. And it has about 1,500 words. And it's intended for communication between people from different nations, i.e. those who don't share a common language. Like a so new version of Esperanto? Kind of, but probably more useful than Esperanto. Esperanto's never really got off the ground. No, I've got a bit of a soft oh, spot I, yeah, for Esperanto. I um, <laughs> but I was a bit disappointed to see that it wasn't their coinage, i.e. the people who wrote this letter. But uh, it's just such an absurd... But the, the, these words are they mostly words to be used by people who are in in business, who are you know making meetings or. or I think any, anyone who's involved things? in kind of international transactions or so whatever. What kind of words and are what kind they? of words are they? Yeah. Well, they didn't single out any particular terms, but they said that le globish is a is a threat to the French language and the French cultural values and dissemination of ideas. And they point out that there are over three hundred million francophones across the world. And I do remember once looking up and discovering that French was the most, the third most used language on the internet, which is quite surprising. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah, so I guess it would but be... But I, I suppose that makes sense because, <coughs> well, Lucy and I were talking about it before, the, the francophonie, that's, mm. you know, since the 1800s, this desire to make sure that the French language is, is you know... Pure. Pure and, and, and unsullied. And also yeah. helped unsullied, with the building yes. of yeah. empire, I suppose, back, you know, back yeah. in the day, but... Certainly in terms of it being prevalent on the internet. Isn't there also a, a law, I don't know how they would go about enforcing it, but if you're a French official, you have to speak in French in your official capacity. You do. There was a law in the 90s, I think it's called the Loi Toubon. Yeah. Where they um, they prescribed the use of foreign terms where a perfectly good French mm. one existed. Why, why shouldn't they? Mm. But, um, I think with the internet it's been a problem because... They, they talk about la toile for the web, but I mean, they also refer to it sometimes as... Yeah. Know, mm. Well, I remember it's certainly in, 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 in French, you have to say l'ordinateur when every other language just is fine with computer. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, they say sur internet, you know, yeah. it sounds a bit odd, but I mean, that's, there's no yeah. other way of saying it. You know? Yeah. So you were saying in your piece that you, you look at uh, the, the, the Michel Legrand's obituary later on and find it yeah. absolutely full of English words. Yes, on the, in the same issue, it's full of, you know, terms like... Um, Le casting de son de ses rêves, you know, <laughs> son premier hit international, mm. and um, son look. Yeah. Look is a really old one. Look yeah. is. I, well, I remember when I was living in Paris, everyone was saying uh, Londonisation, like la Londonisation, or like uh, c'est yeah. un bar très London, mm. uh, yeah. and, and that was really big. I mean, compared to, I think mm. of it compared to Italian, and in Italy, we, 
I mean, we have uh, an academy, um, the Kruska, which predates France. Yeah, it predates It was the Italian one, was based in Florence, and it was the first linguistic academy in the world. Um, but I don't really, I don't, I don't really understand how it operates, and that it can't stop. It can't stop things, and the Italian language imports everything it can, as far as I can tell. I yeah. mean, if you if you hear people talking about, um, you know, scheduling, or meeting, uh, they mm. talk about marketing. Mm. It's you know, full time, part time. Oh, all, really? the, yeah. all of these things are imported, especially in politics, business, and tech, I suppose. But even in fashion, which is an Italian. You know, yeah. we, we own fashion to a yeah. to a degree, Ooh, but we talk about French. but we talk about trendy everything. You know, really trendy. Well, <laughs> yes, as, as Lucy says, I mean, the French would claim it as theirs yeah, too. But yeah, they they use in fashion, they use them mm. English mm. all the time. I suppose that's, yeah. Yeah. that's about ease of communication. I suppose if you're putting on a show and you've got people mm. working from around the world, but, but they have some really very reluctantly. Yeah, they they they. I think the French deliberately distort French uh, English words and terms. Just to annoy us, <laughs> I mean, they have things like le le relucage, yes, which is, which is hideous, obviously. But I is I that can, hair relucage or is it anything? Sorry, do you use it for like is I it for like a just, haircut just for a, or is it makeover? just a, like a makeover? makeover yeah. Yeah. Relucage is really no, so, and then there's one which we're getting for decades, le bon standing. Uh, yes, they, they still use it, and it just. It's yeah. so odd because yeah. we don't. And le fooding. Mm-hmm. And le footing, don't they, for jogging? Don't they used to le say footing. footing? But le fooding, there's a conference every year on le fooding. <laughs> and it's it's bizarre because all the, I imagine all the culinary discussions are about French. You know, well, you'd hope they yes, about in French. The terroir <laughs> and all the rest of it. But the, uh, but the banner headline is le fooding, which is, uh, you know, and then they, obviously things like le tennis man, le rugby man, mm. le, I mean, it goes on and on. Listen, I mean, we could do this all day. Really it's good. perfectly yeah, clear really to me that we could do this all day. But I would want to ask about the converse as well, which is yes. which is the one that, that that you articulated as being our problem, as it were, the decline in numbers of people studying modern languages. Are you worried about that? Do you think that's worrying? Well, it is slightly dispiriting to discover this. I came across a website um, called knowledgeacademy.com and they had a chart listing the number of... the, the, the Subjects being uh, taken up by undergraduates in 2018, so it's up to date. And the third least popular subjects and second least popular subjects were European language and lit and all other languages and lit. Which I thought the second was a bit surprising because I thought there'd been a lot of interest in languages like Mandarin. And, mm. But apparently that's no longer the case. Uh, We're not very good at it historically, are we, necessarily? We just expect everyone to speak English everywhere. And that's well, and you, I mean, you obviously both know the British education system far better than I do, but there's there's no language, languages aren't compulsory to any level, yeah, are they? Are. Oh, they are. No, so how since, I mean, Tony Blair in the 90s, late 90s, he, I don't know why they did this, but the the learning of a language at GCSE was no longer compulsory. That's it was made, I mean. it was oh, made sorry, not at GCSE. No, young, younger than that. Yeah, yeah. but so no, you no, do you it don't until have to do. And then you, no, you you could absolutely do. Before. Not even fifteen, actually. Yeah. You do it till you're fourteen, I'd say, and then you can then you can never do any language ever again. Mm. Mm. But presumably, the, the, there's there's been a, a surge in people taking Mandarin and things like that at school level because there's the vocational yeah. side to that, that. Well, and also you never used to have it. So yeah, I mean, this is just a very superficial look at it but it, it did seem I mean the statistics I would have thought were mm. incontrovertible mm. and it's maybe if people are studying Mandarin they don't take it through to university level 
and it's certainly the case for European languages. It seems to be in decline. I mean, my daughter's secondary school was a, a language academy, and it no longer is. Let's talk about how brilliantly we all do it. No, I don't mean <laughs> us personally. I mean the TLS. Mm. Um, what about the prizes then? So first of all, this is a very this is a, a quite straightforward question for you. How many books did you read in preparation <laughs> for this piece? How many books did I read? That's a good question. I was sent twelve. And I certainly read seven in the entirety. <laughs> very, very, very impressive. And I read uh, quite a lot of the other five. Yeah, no, that's what I was saying. You, not, yeah. not, not only the prize winners, Time but also, pressing. The, also mm. the runners-up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And w- can you tell us what the terms of the prizes are? What languages are they for? Is it fiction or non-fiction? What, what are the kind of conditions? Um, so is there anything published in that language in, in the year coming up? So they're always a, it's always a year behind. So this is for 2018. So they're books which may have been published up to two years ago. It tends to be dominated by fiction and poetry. I mean, this year is very heavy on fiction. But you also get history books, memoirs, autobiography. Mm-hmm. Quite a lot of graphic novels are coming into it. The graphic novels seem to feature particularly among the French. Mm. And it's mostly European candidates. languages. Well, there, there are four annual prizes. So there's a, the Arabic prize, the Saif Gobash Banipal, that's every year. And then the Scott Moncrief is every year for mm-hmm. French. The Schlegel Teak for German is given out every year. And the Premier Valle Clan for Spanish is also given out every year. And then the others, John Florio Prize for Italian is not it's more, almost every year, but not quite. Mm-hmm. Then there's a Hebrew Prize, which is every two or three years. The Greek one seems to have fallen off away, which is a bit of a shame. So it's always rather interesting. Mm. And there's a Dutch one, the Fondel Prize. And a Portuguese one. Are there themes? Were there themes that stood out this time or not really? No themes whatsoever. It's it's like sort of trying to herd cats. I mean, (laughs) the Banipal Arabic Prize was given to a novel by an Iraqi writer. Oh, this one sounds brilliant. Muzin al-Ramli. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's it's quite, uh, quite a hard read. I mean, it's about looking at the history of Iraq through the last 35 years, from the beginning of the Iran-Iraq War, so that's 1980 up to more or less the present day through the lives of three villagers, all of whom get conscripted in the Iraqi army for the war against Iran in 1980. Mm. And one of them spends 20 years in captivity in Iran and sees some really terrible things. Another of the characters ends up working... The book is called The President's Gardens, and the president obviously being Saddam Hussein, who's never actually mentioned by name, Right, he's just the mm. president. But one of them, uh, Ibrahim, gets a job as a gardener in the president's gardens, and he's warned that if he cuts off a rose's head, then you know that could be he'll lose his own. Yeah, he could lose his own. Uh, it's and then it takes it goes up to the um, invasion of Iraq in two thousand and three. So you can imagine. How mm. Well, you say the novel's message comes in Abdullah's <laughs> grim summation of Iraq's plight. All epochs have been shit. That which went before was no better than what's happening now. Since the day this country was established on this soil, it has never seen ten continuous years of peace, and it appears it never will. I read a novel a couple of years ago, which was called also by an Iraqi called The Corpse Washer, which, as its title suggests, is fairly grim. It's also Mm. about recent Iraqi history. Mm. And I I guess that um, fiction coming out of Iraq for the foreseeable future is going to be focusing a little bit on that. In recent history, um, yeah. 
And finally, I know you are not supposed to do this because you're mm. telling our readers about the prizes and the translations and the wonderful work and the cornucopia. Mm. It's not about having favourites, but yeah. <laughs> did any of them stand out? By which I realised as I wrote that, did, I mean, did you have any favourites? Um, are you allowed to tell us? So I really enjoyed uh, Lena Meruan's book, uh, Seeing Red, which uh, Meruan's a Chilean writer. Uh, but she lives, I think she probably lives in the States, and the book is partly set in New York, partly set in Santiago. And it's about a writer who suddenly develops, um, she goes blind, and she had been warned by her doctor that this might happen, and she has a hemorrhage during a party in New York. And um, the rest of the book is told through as she comes to term and tries to deal with her incapacity. And apparently Marijuana herself was temporarily blinded. It's fascinating to see how, how she changes as a person as a result of this terrible affliction. And it's it's very unsparing. It's 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 pretty I thought it was a wonderful book. That's translated it, by Megan McDowell. McDowell. Megan McDowell, yes it's, uh, it's an American translation. It's it, it's, it was, I thought it was a great book. Um, Brilliant. Well, we should all go out and read at least seven. Well, if I, not 12. I really like the sound of the Lutz Sailor. Lutz one, Sailor, so yeah. I'll read that one. It's a big book. It's good. Mm, it sounds, it sounds yeah. great. Cruzo. 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 Yeah. Very sounds good. Fantastic. Thomas the trans- Who's the translator of that one? We have to pick up the translation. Uh, Tess this, Lewis. Uh, Tess okay. Lewis. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're, let's all go out and read as many translations as we possibly humanly can though we won't catch up with adrian <laughs> thank you very much for joining us well, thank you um it is very nearly time to say goodbye for another week but before we do a quick reminder that there is a bonus episode of the podcast this week a missive from hay festival cartagena in colombia where earlier this month the novelist chimamanda ngozi adiche delivered the inaugural gabriel garcia marquez lecture so assuming that like us you were not able to make it in person you can listen to the lecture in the comfort of your own home or in whatever setting you like to listen to your podcasts. It begins in Nigeria with a young Chimamanda attempting, against parental orders, to scale a barbed wire fence. But for now, all that remains is for us to thank Rebecca Watson and Adrian Towardin for joining us today and to suggest that if you don't already, you might like to subscribe to the TLS or simply buy this week's issue. In it, you will find a rigorous investigation of the language of identity, coverage of a stunning and strange selection of graphic novels, some lost essays by modern masters and barely suppressed rage as a history of ignoring early women writers. Stig is back next week, as am I. So till then, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.